I'm really excited that Jonathan Warren Pagan, who's a friend of our community, many of you will know him from his teaching and various preaching, is here today. And so I just wanted to, uh, he's gonna pray in a second, but just extend your hand. I'm gonna just pray a blessing over him really quick. Gracious God, I pray you'd pour out your Holy Spirit upon Jonathan. Thank you for the gift of him and the gift of your word. And we pray that these gifts together by the power of your Holy Spirit would work to achieve your purposes among us this day. Amen. I'm going to pray again real quick to start us off. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you are a consuming, purifying fire. This is good news, Lord. We pray that you would make us a people who have intimacy with Jesus and who can therefore enter by the narrow way. Make us that people this morning, Lord. We would see Jesus. We give you all of this in our time together this morning. Amen. Hey, it's so good to be here with you this morning. Uh, Resurrection South Austin sends greetings. Um, it is just a privilege to worship with you this morning and just to see this vibrant fellowship of saints. So, so grateful to be here. As I was meditating on the gospel passage for this week, I was drawn over and over again to two phrases that just really stood out to me over and over again. The first was from verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. And the second was from verse 29. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast of the kingdom of God. As I zeroed in on these two phrases in prayer because I felt like the Spirit kept bringing them to me, I was like, I don't understand how these kind of fit together. Like, what is it that you want to say? And, and as I was praying, it became clear to me why the Spirit caused them to stand out to me. Because together, they illustrate a surprising paradox about the way that Scripture describes the church and a dynamic that is visible throughout the history of the church and its two millennia of existence. Here's the paradox. If you look at it from an external standpoint, just as what, just what's happening on the surface of things, the church is the weakest and the most vulnerable of all institutions. The church is, as St. Paul puts it, outwardly wasting away. The church is rent by schisms and divisions. It's beset by devastating moral lapses and intellectual challenges. And it's constantly seeming like it's on the verge of collapse. See, the way that Isaiah is describing Jerusalem in our Old Testament passage today, like that's true of the church too. It's true of the people of God in all ages. I was thinking this week about the fact that in the 19th century, many public intellectuals in Europe and in America were ready to write the church's epitaph. In the mid-19th century, Matthew Arnold wrote a famous poem called Dover Beach. He was walking over the cliffs of Dover one night, and he saw the tide drawing out. And he, it suddenly struck him as an apt metaphor for the faith draining away from England, losing plausibility, beset by the insuperable challenges of modernity. The sea of faith, he wrote, was once, too, at its full. But now I only hear its melancholy, long withdrawing roar. The sea of faith, Arnold thought, was going out and it was leaving behind it only a bleached, bleak, barren shoal. The church was losing its power over England's and Europe's imagination. It was losing the power to inspire and challenge and transform. People, especially young people like Arnold was when he wrote this poem, were apostatizing from the faith in droves. And in America, at the beginning of the 21st century, the church is having what we might call an Arnoldian moment. Everywhere we look, we see the signs of weakness and decay. Church leaders are failing us. And so-called Christian politicians take the Lord's name in vain by claiming Jesus' support for this or that cause. 
The church is culturally assimilated to the degree that our behavior is just like the world's, and our churches more and more look like either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party at prayer. And the result is that the church lacks the power of the Spirit. It is failing to inspire, and it is collapsing just as it was in Arnold's day. The sea of faith has gone out, leaving behind a bleak and desiccated shoal. And young people, especially, just like in Arnold's day, are leaving the church in droves. There's a lot to be discouraged about as far as the realities of the church in America are concerned. But failure and decline is only one part of the story, one side of the paradox as St. Paul articulates it. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. The surprising, paradoxical thing is not actually that the church is always externally wasting away, but rather that it is simultaneously, inwardly, invisibly being renewed. That's the truth that Scripture presents to us. And it presents it to us as a reality because the church does not depend upon the efforts of the church. The church depends upon the will of God and the power of, Holy, of the Holy Spirit to make efficacious the kingdom of God in our midst. It's God's will to be glorified in his church that makes for the renewal and the revival of the church. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> the church is always simultaneously externally wasting away and inwardly being renewed. And this is true in two ways. It's illustrated by these two phrases, I think, from our gospel passage this morning. It is true first from a geographical point of view. The missiologist Scott Sundquist, who is now, by the way, the president of my alma mater, Gordon-Conwell, feel a great degree of pride about that. But he says that Christianity is unique among all world religions in this sense. While every other world religion has an historic heartland, which has remained its center from its foundations to the present day, Christianity does not have an historic heartland. Rather, its pattern is to take root and then to bloom in a region. It creates a new expression of the faith among a people group or groups in that space. It flourishes for a time. It goes from strength to strength, but then it withers and appears to die. But its seeming death in one region corresponds with its growth and vitality in another place. The church is always dying and rising again. It has weakness and strength held together in a perpetual and painful tension. There's this shocking statistic that Sunquist cites. At the beginning of the 20th century, he says, 80% of the world's Christians were in Europe and the Americas, and only 20% were in the so-called majority world. But now, as we enter the 21st century, two-thirds of the world's Christians are in the majority world, and only one-third are in Europe and the Americas. And that is not primarily because Christianity has shrunk in those historic heartlands, but primarily because it has exploded across the majority world, growing with such vigor in places like sub-Saharan Africa in the late 20th century, and in East Asia in the 21st century, that there is no historic precedent for its growth. And in this, we see that Christ's words, people will come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and they will take their places at the feast and the kingdom of God is fulfilled in just this way. Yes, it may be the case, as Jesus warned over and over again in his ministry and in this passage as well, that the number who trust in the Messiah that God actually sent, not the one that they hoped he would send among the ancient Israelites, would be few. But it will not be few among the nations. 
The nations will stream into the kingdom of God. People will come from east and west and north and south, and they will take their place at the king's banquets. The demographer, Gina Zerlo, also who teaches at my alma mater, Gordon Conwell, give it up. She tells us that there are over 2 billion Christians in the world today, a greater number and a greater percentage of the world's population than ever before in human history. And these people come from every tribe, tongue, and nation with an unbelievable diversity of expression and worship, just like John of Patmos prophesied in Revelation 9. This is true that the church is being renewed day by day, invisibly, in ways that are hard to detect. It's true geographically. But Paul's declaration that we are internally being renewed day by day is true in another sense as well. Not only is the communion of saints being renewed geographically by adding more and more peoples of the world under the lordship of Jesus Christ, it is also true cyclically. Here's what I mean by that. The seeming death of Christianity among a people is actually not the end of the story for the gospel there. The faith is cyclical. In one generation, it appears that the faith has lost all of its power. It seems that the Spirit has left the temple of the church. Fewer and fewer people seem interested in taking on the demanding life of discipleship. And this, in turn, produces fewer and fewer conversions to the faith, and it engenders more and more apostasy as the faith comes to look more implausible to people. But in this, the Spirit has not abandoned the church. No, the Spirit is working invisibly to renew and to revive the church through this. The judgment of God comes and it it purifies, it cleanses, it engenders righteousness and justice as the plumb line, just as Isaiah said. The faith returns to a people who once knew its power in surprising and unlooked-for ways on the backs of unexpected messengers from different places and in new and in surprising forms. We call this movement of the Spirit in places that once knew the fire of the gospel but have grown cold, revival. The Scottish historian of revivals, James Burns, says that Arnold's metaphor is incomplete as he wrote it. If the tide of the the sea of faith has gone out, leaving behind what looks like a dead, barren shoal, then at the time appointed by God, it will sure as the sun rises come rushing back in. That's what a tide does. Arnold, have you never been to the ocean before? You know what I'm saying? That's what James Byrne is saying. Arnold, you sound stupid, bro. (laughs) God will not permit his church to permanently remain in a faithless and morally compromised state, but he will renew it. Did you hear those beautiful words from the prophet Isaiah this morning? The people of God have boasted, we have made a covenant with death. The Assyrians can't touch us. We made a covenant with death. But the Lord God says, I will annul your covenant with death because it is my will to be glorified in you. I am not rejecting you. I am committed to purify you and to cut off everything that blocks my glory from being manifested in you. That's good news. The object of our faith is not the empirical state of the church in any given place at any given moment. The object of our faith is a very specific set of facts. Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, sitting enthroned at the right hand of God. 
Jesus Christ sending his spirit to indwell his people. Jesus Christ returning at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead where his kingdom will have no end. Through the finished work of Jesus, God has and will continue to annul our covenant with death. He will cause revival to break out across the land in ways we can never imagine or anticipate. And our joy is that we get to join him in praying for it, longing for it, being part of it. That is an incredible privilege, brothers and sisters. That is our destiny. That is our hope this morning. Those fundamental facts are the object of our faith. It is those facts which engender the hope by which we are inwardly renewed day by day. And if you're paying attention, those facts are all over this liturgy, which we offer in our worship each week. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We say those words called the memorial acclamation every week before the Eucharist. Pay attention as we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist. We will say those words together. We profess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed every week because these are the facts. Our calling is precisely the same whether the church is declining where we are or whether it is growing so fast we can't keep up with the growth. The great 20th century Bishop Leslie Newbegin said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. Yes and amen. Our faith cannot waver based on what's happening in the church in our corner of the world at this moment. But here's what Newbegin is not saying, and here's what I'm not saying this morning. He's not saying we shouldn't care whether the church in our moment is faithful or faithless. In fact, whether the church in our place and time is faithless or faithful makes a huge difference in terms of our posture and in terms of our practices as a church. When the facts that we have faith in start to look like they're contradicted by the reality of the church as we experience it in our place and in our time, then the time has come to pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 24. Strive to enter by the narrow door. There are many, Jesus says, who will be lost because although his name is on their lips, they deny him with their lives. They don't actually want Jesus. They want to be able to claim Jesus, but they don't want who Jesus is. They don't want his kingship. They don't want his lordship in their lives. This is a hard word, but very plainly in this passage, Jesus says that there will be many who say they knew him, but they did not cultivate intimacy with him. They were not his disciples. The central facts of the faith are not going to change. And the call of discipleship is never going to get easier. It is not Jesus who is going to change. It is we in the church who are going to have to change. It is we in the church who are going to have to have our hearts broken. It is we who are going to have to become soft-hearted. It is we who are going to have to repent. So when the church is declining and failing around us, what do we do? What should be our posture? I think we begin this way. We begin by allowing ourselves to burn with a holy dissatisfaction about the way things are in the church. We profess those facts and we say the church is not what the church ought to be. It is right to feel anger about the church's covenant with death. It is a dire thing, a cause for fasting and mourning that the church has so abandoned intimacy with Jesus that it no longer loves the truth. But we can't stop there. Our culture is awash with critics and dissatisfied people and people who are deconstructing. That is not enough. 
The gospel tells us that we have to keep going and become dissatisfied with ourselves. The church is not out there. We are the church, right? We are the ones who are failing to be entirely self-dedicated to Jesus. We are the ones who are faithless. We are the ones who want to hold back our money and our sexuality and our power from Jesus. We are the ones who are trying to have Jesus in our best life now. We are the ones who are condemning ourselves by having the form of godliness but denying its power. We are the ones, in short, who have made that covenant with death. When we have a real existential reckoning with our own contributions to the failures of the church, then we are in a place to cry out in brokenheartedness to the Lord. We are in a place to lay down our self-defensiveness and our selfishness and ask not just for forgiveness, but as our prayer of confession says, for renewal and amendment of life. When we are in that place of submission to the Lord, then the Lord is beginning to annul our covenant with death. The Lord is beginning to renew us inwardly again. The Lord is beginning to form a people who can be the beachhead of revival. The Lord is creating for himself a people who can enter by the narrow gate. And listen, that crew is going to be small. The church around you may continue to shrivel and shrink and be faithless. And sometimes it will seem, like Flannery O'Connor once said, that you will have to suffer as much from the church as for the church. We trust Jesus with the breadth and the impact of the revival that he brings. We are neither optimists nor pessimists. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. But I promise that if you persevere in prayer, revival will grow in you and in those around you. When you find others who are dissatisfied, not just with the way things are, but are submitted enough to the Lord to be dissatisfied with themselves too, that's when momentum happens. That's when you can feel the electricity begin to crackle. That's when you are galvanized and the life of prayer and the life of discipleship start to sound exciting and not like dull and gray duty. That's when the Lord is beginning to form a people who are eager and ready to enter by the narrow door. And that's when your righteousness will break forth like the dawn and God will be glorified in his church. That's what we have to pray for. That's what we have to long for. That is what we have to strive for. So take heart, church. Outwardly, we are wasting away, but inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, past and present. You are surrounded by the communion of saints, brothers and sisters of every tribe, tongue, and nation coming from east, west, north, and south to take their place at the table of God. But you have even more hope than that this morning. The Holy Spirit dwells in you this morning. The Holy Spirit is meeting, here, meeting you here in this space in word and sacrament. This morning even, he is calling all of us to repentance. God loves the church in America. Do you believe that? Do you believe this morning, church, you are beloved? You can trust him to renew and to revive the church in America as he rouses us from our slumber and teaches us to strive to enter by the narrow gate. God will annul our covenant with death because we are his and he loves us. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's take just a brief moment of silence to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning.